Friday. Every day is a good day for practicing this path, developing and purifying the mind. So it's Good Friday in the world, but we are already directing our minds towards goodness, that which is bright and pure, towards practicing wisdom, bringing it to life in our hearts in our speech, in our conduct, in our daily life. And in honor of my dear friend, Mechi Taranikama, who passed away on Good Friday in Australia, which was just yesterday, a good spiritual friend to me and to so many, a person who did her utmost to fulfill this Eightfold Noble Path and may have realized the supreme fruit of this path in her final moments, offering great inspiration and encouragement to me and to all who knew her. And so I would like to read to you in her honor and also responding to something that came up today in a, a talk with one of you, a sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings. This is the Connected Discourses, and it's part two, book five, the great book, the Mahavaga, number two, and it's called Half the Holy Life. Thus have I heard On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans where there was a town of the Sakyans named Nagaraka. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One. Having approached him, he paid homage to the Blessed One, sat down to one side and said, Venerable Sir, this is half of the holy life. That is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. Not so, Ananda. Not so, Ananda. This is the entire holy life. Ananda, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship, 
When a bhikkhu has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And how, Ananda, does a bhikkhu who has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu develops right view, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right intention, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right speech, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right action, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right livelihood, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right effort, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right mindfulness, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. He develops right concentration, which is based upon seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, maturing in release. It is in this way, Ananda, that a bhikkhu who has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path. By the following method too, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. By relying upon me as a good friend, Ananda, beings subject to birth are freed from birth. Beings subject to aging are freed from aging. Beings subject to death are freed from death. Beings subject to sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair are freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. By this method, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire holy life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. That is what the Blessed One said. This little sutta is repeated many times throughout the Pali Canon. The Buddha also reiterates in the Sutta of the Highest Blessings, the Mangala Sutta, the very first blessing is the companionship of the wise. The Buddha exhorts us, asevana cha balanang panditanang cha Stay away from foolish people. Keep companionship of the wise. Consider yourselves disciples, devotees, 
not necessarily to the person of the Buddha, but to the higher mind. Buddhab. It means the one who knows, the one who is awake. That's what we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to awaken to that which knows truth, so that we're no longer caught in ignorance. The Buddha here is addressing all those intent on, devoted to awakening. The holy life is the life specifically inclined towards and oriented towards developing a mind that is free from blame, free from harm, free from fear, free from worry, free from greed, free from ill will, from hate, that is renounced. So to fulfill that, we are undertaking a very high level of virtue. It's a life of integrity. It's not only holy, but it's whole, it's integral. So it requires that we hold precepts foremost. If we don't have integrity, it's like wearing torn clothing or having a tear in your skin. Your body is weakened if there's a wound. When you have a cut or a break in your body, you go to a doctor. And when we have a rent or a tear in our moral fabric, we must repair that. And we do that through sila, virtue. So this is why the holy life, if it's whole, to really live a whole life, a full life, a life that is founded in and embellished by integrity, then pick up virtue fully and don't compromise. If we live that kind of a life, we will ask, who is a good friend? What holds up such a life? Ananda asked the Buddha, is half the life friendship with the good, friendship with a good companion, a good comrade, a good friend? And the Buddha says, no, Ananda, it's 100%. What kind of a friend is a good friend? A good friend is just like this being that is living the holy life, one who upholds goodness, one who develops wisdom, one who is devoted to virtue, devoted to awakening, devoted to stillness in the mind, to purifying the mind. That's the meaning of a good friend, a good companion. And then the Buddha explains a little bit how this noble eightfold path is developed. Not only does this good friend help us to develop this noble eightfold path, but this is a path that that friend himself or herself is developing. And it requires seclusion. So here's an example. We are very secluded here. We are practicing a form of viveka, is seclusion. But the seclusion that the Buddha is talking about is not just hanging out in a retreat center, but he's talking about citta viveka. Citta viveka means seclusion in the mind. How do we develop that? Well, the next thing he talks about is 
dispassion. What is it in the world that we like, that we run after so much, that we get so excited about? We get kidnapped by. We get distracted by. Now we are so controlled and mesmerized by gadgets that people would rather give up their relationships with each other than put down their smartphone. Surveys have been done. This is a very sad state of affairs. So dispassion means that we have a certain coolness in the heart towards the world. That we realize the emptiness of it. We know that whatever happiness we yearn for, we're not going to find it in gadgets. We're not going to find it in exciting adventures, cruises, having all the freedom in the world to enjoy whatever sense pleasure we want. Those things just give us fleeting, shallow happiness, not deep, not lasting. As soon as it's over, we're already, before we even gotten it in our hands, we're looking for the next thing. We're already disappointed. But if we develop dispassion, this comes with a certain amount of wisdom developed in seclusion of the mind, investigating, meditating, sealing the sense doors off so that we're not distracted anymore, and looking only at the mind, studying the mind, getting to know the mind, What is this mind? What do we learn when we sit down to meditate? What is the first thing we notice when we look at the mind? We actually learn that there is that which appears in the mind and that which knows what appears in the mind. So there's the mind, materiality and mentality. There are two processes going on. One is the phenomena of the world being experienced and the other one is the knowing of those phenomena. So, is the mind the same as the object? No. They're different. This is what we can learn as soon as we sit down to meditate. Why is that important? Why is it important? How many of you notice that your thoughts arise and cease, but they are not consciousness of those thoughts? How many of you notice that your breath arises and ceases, but it is not the consciousness that knows the breath? What does that tell us? If we look deeply, it tells us that we are not this body, and we are not our thoughts. Because if we were our thoughts, then this mentality would be the same as that which is arising and ceasing. But it's not. They're different. There are two processes going on. There's the objects or the contents of the mind, the phenomena that we notice, and there's the attention, that awareness that knows those phenomena. They're different. This is a very important insight. All the things that appear at the sense doors, 
forms, sights, smells, tastes, sounds, you hear a sound, is the hearing of that sound what we are? What are we? This is what we're investigating. Then we can have the insight that we are neither of those processes. If we were either of those processes, then we would be able to control them. But we're not able to control them because they arise codependently. Our ability to know a sound depends on the sound arising in consciousness. But we cannot control either of those processes. So what are we? We start to get a glimmering of anatta, the emptiness of self. What's solid in there? By the seclusion of the mind and by dispassion with worldly experience, we begin to realize that this self or this concept of a self, this ego, that we spend so much time enslaved by, our whole life circles around this belief that we are this solid being in control of a life. And when we sit down to meditate and study our experience with dispassion towards the world and to the sensory impingement at our five sense stores and the mind, we start to see the truth that there's nothing solid in there to hang on to. There are just mental phenomena that are known by consciousness and the knowing of those mental phenomena is also impermanent. It's just arising and ceasing with those phenomena. There are two codependent processes their whole way of, their whole manner of operating is based on a cause-effect relationship. One conditions the other. We come to that insight, that understanding of what it is that we're knowing moment by moment. And if we can keep the hindrances at some distance, long enough, by developing dispassion, we experience to see with our own eipasiko, direct experience, the truth of the way things are. As we develop that, we also can experience a stillness. The mind tends to be so caught up and so quick to move from object to object to object liking and disliking and coming and going it's endless and it's exhausting and there's no final happiness in it nothing that can fully fulfill our yearning, our longing we always want the next thing or the next experience there is a possibility to stop and this is the freedom that the Buddha is talking about if we develop seclusion from the world, if we develop dispassion to the world, if we learn to restrain our sense doors, not to run after those sounds, smells, tastes, forms, feelings, sensations that are likable, pleasurable, but to develop the joy and beauty of the heart through this practice, incomparable 
with anything that the world has to offer. That freedom. There's nothing out there. There isn't a mountain of money that could buy that, secure that, guarantee that experience for us in the way that this simple act of stopping, secluding, cooling the mind, coming into a present moment awareness, the rising and ceasing of things as they really are, that can bring us that cessation of suffering. That stopping gives us a taste of freedom. This process, this activity, matures if we continue to develop it through our lifetime. It matures into Nibbana. It's not just a momentary freedom, but it's a lasting freedom so that we can abide with a heart that is unsullied by any worldly impacts, any condition of life can no longer disturb or shake our equilibrium, our joyfulness, our peace of heart. If we have friendship with those who are cultivating this path, then we too will be able to cultivate it. That's why the Buddha says that friendship with the lovely is 100% of the path. And he also means by that friendship with the Buddha. Getting to know our own wisdom. Getting to develop it, expand it, sharpen it, fulfill it until it fully matures into release, into freedom. This is the Buddha mind. It's not something historic. It's not something that only happened 2,600 years ago. There is a legacy of centuries of beings who have practiced this way, followed this map of the heart and developed a maturity of wisdom and freedom from suffering, from birth, old age, sickness, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Freedom from those is a deathlessness. And they have done that through the ages. Numerous beings, right up until Tara, they come up yesterday. If not full awakening, then Anagami, non-returner. To have had a mind that had only loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy and equanimity in it, This path, the Noble Eightfold Path, is developed by those who understand something about what our suffering is. So they understand the Four Noble Truths. They get a glimmering, a glimpse into our own suffering nature or into our own conditioning in this world. And the first noble truth is just that. There is this suffering. And the second noble truth is there's an origin of this suffering. 
And the third noble truth is there is cessation of it. The Buddha has promised that. And the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. How do we get there? How do we do it? Right view, number one. To know that there is a way and to understand the importance of developing it, having a a wise, a little bit of a wise understanding, enough to get us here on the cushion. Right view. But then, as we develop the meditation practice, that right view keeps being refined so that we begin to see the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta. That everything's impermanent. And it's all suffering. And there's no solid self. This self that we subscribe to doesn't exist. It's an ADA, not ADHA. It's an ADA teaching. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's very relevant, it's universal. All of us can come to realize this just in one moment of paying close attention to the present moment and seeing consciousness focusing one-pointedly on the object and restraining all the hindrances, keeping greed, hatred, and delusion at bay, developing a mind that is grounded in harmlessness, fearlessness, renunciation, We have to give up. There's something you have to give up. Like I said yesterday, if we can't give up these kind of worldly habits and pleasures to some degree, you know that, like Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you get complete peace. Right view, right thought. Right thought means right intention. It's not like being right that there's seven billion people in the world. That's information. Whether we know that or not, that won't help us develop wisdom. But right thought understands the law of kamma. Kamma is based on right thought, right intention. And if we develop right intention, we're acting with virtuous intent, with skillful intent, with wholesome intent, moment by moment, even in our thoughts, not just in our speech or action, but our thoughts which are at the very root of karma. So the importance of karma is, it's not a destiny. I'm just destined to live a miserable life because I was a bad person. Karma doesn't mean that we have to suffer. This is a liberating teaching. There is suffering, but there's also an ending of it. 
if we incline our minds towards wholesomeness, then we can free ourselves from our bad habits. We can develop goodness, not just on Good Friday, but every day. That's the joy. That's the good news. That's the blessing, the great riches of this path. It's very unique in that way. And it's completely a DIY project. No one else can do this for us. We have to do it ourselves. Right view, right intention, or right thought. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. When we develop those eight, the Buddha says, these mature into right release. It's a freedom. It's guaranteed liberation. So, there's a lot there. It's, it's a very compact little sutta. We could spend a whole month just going through these many facets. But in a nutshell, practice generosity, virtue, cultivation of the Noble Eightfold Path to mature and develop wisdom. Keep the company of good friends, spiritual friends, wise friends, who encourage you on this path and who protect you in virtue, in goodness, in wisdom, who look after you with care, with loving kindness, with compassion, not with a critical, needling mind, not sarcastically, not putting you down, Examine your life and see what kind of relationships you have. If they are not supporting you on this path, maybe you can abandon them. In looking at the Four Noble Truths, with the first truth, we have to know that there is suffering. It's to be known. And then we can know this suffering for ourselves. We also know that there's an origin to this suffering. We know that that origin exists. We know that it should be abandoned. Abandon the things that make us suffer. And then we know that we can abandon them. Not only that they can be abandoned, but it's our duty. This is what we must do. We're being called, we're being summoned. Abandon what brings suffering to us. Greed, hatred, and delusion bring suffering, perpetuate suffering. And then we know that there is cessation of suffering. That cessation of suffering exists. Not only is it there, But we can develop it, and let's develop it. 
let's not waste this gift learning how to use all these smart gadgets when we can develop this incredible faculty of wisdom the panya bojanga the panya the wisdom factor of enlightenment and how do we do that this is the fourth noble truth we just cultivate this noble eightfold path day by day year by year lifetime by lifetime we make a vow to do it and we keep doing it if we haven't committed ourselves to doing this then just study your life and see well what am i doing where am i going with this life what's it leading to what's the highest thing to be gained can we go for it and i say go for it it is possible this path is not only possible it has been realized it has been fulfilled we are capable of doing it then we exhort each other let's do it the beauty of living in a monastery is that i'm with my spiritual friends 24/7 i have the best companions possible fully committed if i get discouraged i just look over and i see them full of determination practicing going for the the gold the truth and i pick myself up we keep encouraging each other holding each other up this is called sangha is community to have noble friends on the path there is nothing like it it's the most glorious way to live it doesn't mean we don't have times of disagreement but then our highest reference point is the dhamma we pay homage we take refuge in nothing else but the buddha the dhamma and the sangha with these three refuges we're safe so even if we fall down even if we hurt each other unintentionally or through a lack of mindfulness immediately we come together we ask for forgiveness we forgive each other and we keep going because the virtue is of such a high degree such a high standard that we know we have these tools that's always there for us to benefit from to be blessed by it's like the buddha is always enshrined in our hearts so when we start suffering we realize we need help and we go to each other and we help each other there's a lot of humility needed for that examine and see what kind of friends you have 
Look for the noblest you can find and stay close to them. This is my advice. Be patient with the things that life brings. Be patient in developing this path. Never give up on it. Dedicate yourself towards goodness day in, day out. Towards developing the sublime states of mind. Loving kindness, compassion, joyful gladness, and equanimity. So that you can grow in peace rather than grow in fashion or in status or in superficial happiness. Then you will know the truth of this teaching and you'll be able to share it with everyone who comes near you. Just through your demeanor, just through your faith, through the sweet taste of your company, people will check it out. They'll think, what is that? I want that. I met somebody who had developed this path and I was so touched by it. It's almost 40 years later. I'm here, still doing it. So I offer this for your reflection tonight.